Now, it's always been like that. You could say that I've been playing for a long time. So, yeah, you're confident because you've been playing for a long time. I was like this as a little guy, okay? Like, I was always the short kid. I was never the tall kid. Like, you know, in elementary school, I had, like, the early growth spurt, and then everybody passed me. No. I was the late bloomer who got his growth spurt in, like, 11th grade, and I was still short. So I've always been small, but I've always had confidence in my abilities, especially with this ball at my feet. And nothing could tell you anything different than when I was on the elementary school playground, and I still remember this, okay? I was... Let's see, I was third grade, so that would make me eight years old. I was eight years old. We played soccer every day on the playground. And I remember um, going up and playing, and I would always get picked, like, second, third, maybe sometimes first. just depends if I wasn't captain. And so I remember playing, and this girl, her name was Lauren. Lauren was playing against us, and I saw her coming at me. I had the ball at my feet. 1v1, I thought, this is going to be so easy. I was so confident. And so I started doing some moves. And I even remember saying the lamest thing in the world to her as I was coming up to her, approaching her. And I said, you ready for the shake and bake? Like, this is what eight-year-old me said. I said, are you ready for the shake and bake? And I tried to do this move. And I did this. I did this little step over. I did this. You know what I did? Lost the ball at my feet. She took it right off my toes and went the other way. And I was flat in the dirt on my face. My confidence levels were pretty high until that day. You can tell because I'm 35 and I still remember Lauren Rafkin taking the ball from me as an eight-year-old on the playground in third grade. Whew! Something stick with you guys. It's weird. It's weird. But I still have a confidence level. That didn't take away my confidence. You could say, man, maybe you're a little overconfident in your soccer abilities. Well, maybe so. Maybe it's just because I have a lot of experience. Maybe it's because I put the time in and work with this ball at my feet. I practiced a lot. I played a lot. I tried to do my best to get to know the game as best as I could. And that grew my confidence. The question that we want to just ask tonight in the time that we have, what are your confidence levels if you were to like rate it on like a scale like this, like this being no confidence at all, all the way to like this, to full confidence, about what happens when you face Christ face to face. Like, what is the confidence you have in your faith? No confidence to full confidence. Like, where are you on that scale of confidence? And that's the question that I just want you to think about as we read. I'm only going to read two verses for you tonight. First John 2, verses 28 and 29. This kind of shifts our focus as we've been going through this book. For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about, like, false gospels. We've talking about cults. We've been talking about all the stuff that's out there that lies to you and tries to deceive you. And now it's shifting for John to tell you that you are the children of God if you are in Christ. So now he's shifting away from here's how you can discern all the false stuff that's out there. Now here's how you can know what's true in you. And here's what he says as he kind of opens up this new part of the book. He says this, now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, there's a couple things that I want you to notice, and this is part of me just trying to train you and help you understand how to read the Bible on your own. This is basic, this is surface, and again, I'm trying to teach you that there's nothing new that I'm doing here that you can't do on your own. Ready? Observe a couple of key things. I highlighted them for you. Now, little children, do something. That's a command. Abide in him. Okay? So the first thing that he says to you is to do something. Abide in him. 
because, so that, why should I abide in him? And we'll get to defining abide in him in a second. But why should I do that? When he appears. So hold on. There's a command and there's an event. Both of them are told to you right out of the gate in these two little verses. Okay? So, so you're commanded to abide in Christ. And you are also told that something is going to happen with Christ. When he appears. So there is going to be a time when you will see him face to face. It may be when you pass away. It may be that while you're walking on this planet, he appears in the flesh on this planet the second time. Because he's already come once in the flesh, and now he's going to come back again in the flesh. So at some point, you're going to be face to face with him. When he appears to you, whether that is when you die and you go from this this life into eternity and have to face him face to face, or when he shows back up. So the two things, there's a command and there's a reality of an event that's coming. Let's talk about the event that's coming. Jesus is going to appear on the earth again. The first time he did it was in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? <clears throat> and what's really interesting is as we shift into 1 John chapter 3, you can look at John chapter 3, John's Gospel, same guy, wrote two different books of the Bible. John 3 and 1 John 3 mirror each other a lot really fascinating so i would even if you want to do something fun and and i think this is really it's really fascinating to me to take john chapter 3 this week and read john chapter 3 and then at the same time read first john chapter 3 and see the crossover see connections if you even have to like take a piece of paper and write down something you read in john 3 and then read something in john chapter first john 3 and then connect the two and see how many things cross over this will bring the bible to life for you but here in John chapter 3, verse 17, it talks about when Jesus appeared the first time. Okay, the first time Jesus appeared, it says this. Right after the famous verse that almost everybody can quote, even people who've never gone to church, they hold it up at a sign at a sporting event for some reason. But here's what it says. After John three sixteen comes verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now the second time that he comes is a little different. The first time, no judgment. He was sent in order that the world might be saved through him. I don't know why I typoed, by the way. It's bothering me too. I copy and pasted it straight out of my Bible app, but whatever. Anyway, second time, John chapter 5, Jesus is talking, and he tells you what it's going to look like the second time he shows up. Jesus talking here, he says that God the Father has given him, he's talking about himself, all authority to execute judgment. Because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice. Okay, so, so the first time, no judgment came to save men from their sins. The second time that Jesus comes, Jesus says that God the Father has given him as the son of man, God's only son. He has given him all authority to execute judgment. And when all those who are dead in their tomb will raise up because they will hear his voice. So there is a reality of the first coming of Jesus when he was here, Christmas Day, all the way to Easter. We talk about bur burial, or sorry, birth, then death, burial, resurrection, everything in between. He was here. That was not for judgment. That was for salvation. The second time he shows up is to judge the world. People don't like to talk about this, but this is the reality. When Jesus comes back, he will judge right and wrong, saved, unsaved. He's going to separate 
those who know him from those who don't. He's going to execute judgment, and he has been given the authority to do so by God the Father. So back over in 1 John, it says, I'll reread it. So when he appears, we can have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So, so there are going to be two types of people that are going to be around when Jesus returns the second time. There will be those who are ashamed. Now why? Why would they be ashamed? Well, think about it. The God of the universe shows up, tears the heavens in two, and appears for the whole globe to see him simultaneously at once. If you see that and you're not living for him, you're immediately going to be struck with fear. You will be ashamed. You think that you're not going to be, but I would tell you that every single person who has witnessed something supernatural with their eyes has been terrified. None of them have ever gone, huh, look at that. That's pretty cool. Nah, it's not that good. Let me get back on my phone. Nobody does that. You know how I know that? Because every single time an angel shows up in scripture, people are terrified. And angels are secondary to God's glory. So you imagine what it will look like when God's glory shows up. People are not going to be like, oh, let's check what's on Instagram real quick. Oh, my be real just went off. Hold on. Wait, you could be in it. Nobody's going to do that. Okay? You guys think, like, oh, my goodness, it's going to go up. No. Jesus shows up. Your phone could be going crazy, and you will not look at it because you're going to be so crazily fixed on what you see in front of you. So, naturally, when something that big shows up, if you're not living for him, you'll be ashamed. You'll, you'll be ashamed. I, uh-oh, oh, oh, all the stuff that I, oh, all, he knows that, and he's here, and he will, he's looking at me, uh-oh, um, maybe if I just kind of, maybe if I, maybe if I hide behind some of you guys, like, maybe he'll see you and all the stuff that you did, and I can just kind of, sneak out the back door a little bit while he's not looking. See, a lot of people are going to have that fear. Some people live in that fear today. Like, they don't want God to show back up because they're still not living right for him. And they're like, oh, man, just give me a little bit more time. They're ashamed at his appearing. Now, John wants you and I, as the readers of his word, those who are in Christ, to know the reality of this is that you don't have to live that way. You can actually be unashamed. And this sounds crazy, but, but throughout Scripture, it talks about this, in the New Testament especially. For those who have a relationship with Jesus and have their faith in Christ, guess what? You can stand boldly before him. This isn't an arrogance. This isn't a confidence level like my overconfidence with a soccer ball at my feet. This is a solid core understanding of who you are in Christ and knowing that you have confidence that he will not push you away because of what Jesus has done in your life. That is huge. This is not an arrogance. This is a different type of confidence, a settled confidence in my heart knowing that when God appears, when he tears the sky open, and I'm going to be terrified of what I'm seeing, but at the same time, I'm going to be like, man, he's, he's with me. He's not against me. He's for me. So I'll know that, and I won't have to be afraid. How do you want to be when he shows up? Ashamed or unashamed? Here's what he says. To live the unashamed life, you need to do one thing. It's the first thing that he started out with in verse 28. Abide in him. It's a command, right? We talk about the command and the event. 
the event we just described, here's the command, abide in him. I, I, I've been tearing apart this word in so many different ways over the last couple of weeks because John uses it over and over and over again in chapter 2. And if you need to know more about what Jesus said about abiding, go read John chapter 15. Okay, so I'm giving you a lot of different ways you can get plugged into this. But here are three ways that I think you can really define or maybe shape your understanding of this word abide. One, <clears throat> it's to remain in Christ. Abide literally does mean remain. So it's not too much of a stretch, right? Remain in Christ. But here's the opposite of that. So, so don't move on to some other way. Don't, don't look for some other avenue to God. Don't look for some other avenue to, to fill you up. Don't look for some other thing to tell you truth. Don't look to another way. Jesus is the only way. So remain in him. Don't move on to another gospel. Don't think that there is some, some new line of thought that's going to be better than what God has written in his word. Remain in Christ. Attached to Christ. That is what, when you look at John chapter 15, it's talking about the vine and the branches. It's literally an attachment to the vine. Don't attach your hopes to something else. Don't fix your hopes on some other thing to deliver you. Like, if you're thinking, like, man, life's going to get better when I get this. So you attach your hopes to this. Some of you guys, it's like, when I turn 18 and I can move out, I'm attaching my hopes to the freedom that I'm going to have as an adult. That's the attachment you have, and that's where your hope's at. Some of you are like, man, I'm going to attach my hope to getting solid grades and getting into the college that I've always dreamed of, and then getting the job that I always wanted, and then I'm going to get the money that I've always wanted, and I'm going to have the family I've always wanted, and then I'm going to have the dog I've always wanted, and I'm going to have this fenced-in yard. I'm going to attach my hopes to that. That's not it. It won't deliver you. Attach yourself to Christ. Don't attach your hopes to something else. Here, the third way to abide is rely on Christ. Don't lean into or lean on someone else. We, we have this tendency to, to expect the people around us to do the things that only God can do in our life. We have this tendency to trust in other people, good people, parents, right, family, friends, boyfriend, girlfriend. Like, we, we these are... Good things, good gifts that have been given to you, and yet you think that they can do what only God can do in your life. Don't lean on them for what only Jesus can do. Only rely on him. Those, that's what it looks like to abide in a simple way. So if that's the key to the Christian life, abiding, getting to the end so that when Jesus returns, I don't have to be ashamed, I'm unashamed. The question then becomes, what will I rely on when I'm face-to-face -face with him? And will I have, or how much fear will I have before I speak to him? Because that's what this word, when it talks about back in 1 John 2, 28 and 29, when it talks about this confidence, the, co the word confidence actually means the, the, the unfearful to speak. So, so there's no fear in speaking in that moment. That's what confidence means in this point. So, so how much do you have this lack of fear before you speak to him? So, so this is what it's going to look like. You're, you're going to see him, whether he, it's when he returns on earth or when you stop living this life and you go on into eternity. You're in a moment going to be in the presence of Jesus. You're going to be right in front of him. He's going to be judging. Do I let you into heaven? Do I not? It's the good and the bad. Are you with me or are you against me? You're going to be able to speak in that moment. What are you going to say? Like, what are you going to say? What are you going to put all your confidence in? 
Are you going to say something like, man, like, I've got this, I've got no fear in saying this to you, Jesus. I have been good. I've been, I've been doing it. I, I've been, been going to church. I've been doing it a long time, right? Like, I've been practicing and rehearsing this for a long time with you, so, so I'm good. Is that where your confidence is going to be? Is your confidence going to be in, in the lack of what you've done compared to what somebody else has done? Where's your confidence going to be in that? Uh, are you gonna, is that where you're going to be the most bold and the less fearful of saying something to him like, man, I'm not that bad. Not as bad as this person. Is that where it's going to be? See, at that day, in that moment, when you face him, there's only one thing that he's looking for, and it's perfect righteousness. It's the only thing that's going to be accepted at this judgment, the second coming of Christ. The only thing that will be accepted is perfect righteousness. Now, here's why this is encouraging. Here's why this passage in particular is so encouraging. In verse 29, he says this. If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, he's perfectly righteous, he does everything right, he is in right standing before God, that's the definition of righteousness, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, this is why I wanted you to take a mental note of John chapter 3 in the gospel of John. Not 1 John 3, we're getting there, but John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus interacts with this guy named Nicodemus and he says this. Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, so only perfect righteousness will be accepted at this judgment. You know that Jesus himself is perfectly righteous. And then it says, you know, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, has been born again. Now, I just want to run through this in the last minute or two I have with you. The concept of being born again, Nicodemus, a smart Pharisee, goes, wait a second, how does that work? How would I enter into my mother's womb again? This doesn't work. I've already been born. What are you talking about, Jesus? Here's, th here's three things I want you to understand about being born again. Being born again means that before you are born again, you are spiritually dead. Every single person, before they are born again in Christ, is spiritually dead. Now, Jesus said, you will not see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. So it's critical that you're born again. Absolutely, you have to be born again in order to be with him in the kingdom of God. Before being born again, we are spiritually dead. That means Jesus is saying to us, your natural condition is hopelessly unresponsive, corrupt, and guilty. Without him, we have no hope. We have nothing to lean on, nothing to go back to, nothing to point to when he says, what, what are you going to bring to this judgment seat? What are you bringing here? Nothing. I got nothing. Being born again is something that is done to you, not something that you do. Jesus is confronting you with your absolute dependence on him apart from yourself. Morgan just had to step out to go get her kids, but the reason Morgan wasn't at fall retreat with us is because her sister, my sister-in-law, just had a baby. That baby had no say in the birth, right? I don't, didn't really have an option. Thank you, good. Glad somebody's tracking with me here. You as a baby, when you were born, you didn't have a say in your birth. You didn't have it. You didn't get to decide things. You didn't get to talk about it. You didn't get to say, hey, I, I, I want to be born at this time, not this time. 
Now, you didn't get to have a say in that. It's the same thing in your spiritual life. You were not the one who started it. God did. You have absolute dependence. Something is being done to you by someone else. You didn't initiate. You didn't enact it. You didn't start it. You didn't script it. God did. Being born again is the creation of life in union with Christ. And part of how God does that is by the creation of faith, which is how we experience our union with Christ. So when you're born again, you are born into a union with Christ. And your trust in Christ is how you experience that relationship. So don't ever separate being born again and your faith. They are together. Jesus enacts both of them. Your faith and being born again together. That's how you experience this relationship with him. So as you look at these two little verses, and the, and the reason why I try and take tiny little pieces of scripture and draw things out for you, because I want you to get, all I'm doing is observing it, observing what was here. There was a command and an event. Then it brought me to the realization of the application here. I observe two things that Jesus says. I interpret what it means. Jesus is the one who is righteous, not me. And so now I can be confident and unashamed when he shows up. And so can you if you're in Christ. Here's how, what you can know. This is the application, and this is your take-home before you leave. Jesus is going to return to judge all evil. Promised right there in verse 28. That he will appear again. So he's going to come back. He's not going to allow the world to continue tanking in sin. He's going to come back and judge all evil and take care of evil and destroy all evil. That's the first thing. Second thing. In Jesus, we are God's children. Starts right off the gate by saying this. Now, little children, he's not telling you little kids. He's saying that you are God's children. You belong to him because of Christ. In Jesus, you are God's child. As God's children, we are to act like God's son, Jesus. That's what it says here in verse 29, right? If you know that Jesus is righteous, you may be sure of this, that everyone who practices righteousness or lives like God calls them to live, has been born of Christ. So, if you're born of Christ, you live like him. Finally, right living in us doesn't come from us. It comes from somebody else. It comes from an external source, and his name is Christ. Again, going back to verse 29. He is righteous. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness isn't because they've just been going to church a long time. is isn't just because they figured it all out. It's because they have been born again. So, so here's why I can have this settled confidence when Jesus shows up and I can stand before him and here's what I can say to him is, I am in awe of you and this is what I bring to the judgment seat. You died for me. Your righteousness, you gave to me and I believe because you saved me. You caused me to be born again. I don't bring anything to the table and all the good stuff that I've done in your name, everything that is right, Everything that everybody else looks at and goes, man, he's doing something that's godly. It's because you did it in me. It's because I'm attached to you. If you fail, I fail. If you sin, then I, I've got no hope. But because you have never failed and because you are without sin and because you have allowed me to be born again in your family, I can stand righteous before you. That's the only right living. That's the only answer when he comes back. That's how I can have that subtle confidence because it's not an arrogance of what I've done. It's a subtle confidence in what he's done in me and for me. Same for you if you're in Christ. You have this settled confidence, not fearing the day of his return, but looking forward to it as Hebrews says. We eager, eagerly anticipate. We look forward to that day with so much hope and expectation that Jesus is going to return 
And we know because he'll set everything right and he will say, well done, because you belong to him, because you were born again in him. If you're not, then you're outside of him. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for um, these moments together, this time in your word. And God, we just thank you that there is the truth of the reality of your return, that you will one day return here. You will set everything right. You will take care of evil. You will destroy it once and for all. God, we can only stand before you righteous if you declare us righteous. And so, God, for all those in here who have placed their trust and faith in you and you have caused to be born again, I just pray that tonight is an encouragement for them to know that they are your child and that they are righteous in your sight because of what you have done. Not because of what they have done, because of what you have done in them. Lord, for those in here who their confidence meter and what it will look like to stand face to face with you is low, God, I pray that they would seek you. They would seek out the forgiveness of their sin. They would see that they need a savior. They would see that they will not be able to stand in front of you without perfect righteousness credited to them. That perfect righteousness only comes from you, not through anything else that we can attain here, not through any amount of works, not through any amount of thinking, not through any amount of words. It only comes through you. So God, be with us. Speak to each individual heart in here, no matter where they are on that confidence meter, that they may have confidence in what you have done in their life and that that is all they need. God, we pray these things in your son's beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Don't forget, Sunday be here. Everybody.